0: The topic assigned to me this morning is Soli Deo Gloria, the fifth of the five solas. This PCRT conference has been looking at each of these five solas of the Reformation, and this one, the last one, the glory of God. Most of you will know the shorter catechism, first question and answer, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we see there the connection between glory and enjoyment. John Piper famously has said, we glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The connection between glory and delight. What I want us to think about, and we'll especially land there at the end of this message, is to think about faith as the connection between glory and delight. That we believe in that or in whom we delight in. And we delight in that or whom we find most glorious. Our text is John chapter 12. So please turn in your Bibles. John chapter 12, reading verse 36, the second half of verse 36 through verse 43. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we have come here needing to hear from you. Whatever voices have spoken to us, whispered into our ear in the past week, now we need to hear from you. We are not interested in wasted religious activity just to be here. We get no points to put in our time at church. So since we are here... We want to know what you have to say to us. We want to know your interpretation on our days and upon our hearts. So give us ears to hear and may my heart be humble before you that I might decrease and Jesus Christ might increase. We pray in his name, amen. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. That comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This last section in John chapter 12 deals with a question that has popped up throughout Jesus' public ministry. And you can understand it's an honest question and it's a difficult question. Why this unbelief? You can see it in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. By and large, to this point in John's gospel, the people are not getting it. Nicodemus understood eventually, but he didn't have a clue at first. He came to Jesus at night. He was a teacher. He should have understood these things. He didn't even know the rudimentary elements of the faith and being born again. Some others seem to get it quickly, but then they end up deserting Jesus, John chapter 6. Some people are believing in Jesus, trusting that he is the Christ and following him, but most aren't. And even those who are physically following him from place to place, his disciples and a larger group of disciples, they certainly don't understand all that Jesus is, confused about what sort of Messiah he is meant to be. And especially the Jews and many of their leaders, the blind and the lame, tend to get it. The royal official got it. Some Samaritans were getting it, but not the Jews, and especially not their leaders. And John 8, they famously asked Jesus if he had a devil. Of all the interpretations of Jesus, that one may go down in history as quite possibly one of the worst. So, Jesus, are we right in saying you got a demon. Nope, that's not right. The light had shone in the darkness, and the darkness had not understood it. They want to kill him, and in a week's time, they will kill him. We enter into this season, some churches call Lent, looking with our face toward Jerusalem. Why is the question? Why had they rejected Jesus? Why had they not believed in him? Now, most of us here this morning are probably Gentiles, that is, not Jews, perhaps a few ethnic Jews here. But for the early church, the rejection of the Jews of their Messiah was one of, if not the apologetic issue in those first decades. How do we understand that God's Jewish people, so many writ large, had rejected Jesus? their own Messiah, their prophet, their priest, their king. He came to that which was his own, John 1 11, but his own did not receive him. And in particular, this problem of unbelief is striking because, as verse 37 says, he had done so many signs before them. Now, there are miracles in all of the Gospels. In most of the Gospels, they're called dunamis, Greek for power, Wonder, mighty acts. But there's a particular word, a different word here in John, semione. it's The special word in John is translated as signs, and it's almost a semi-technical term for all of the miraculous events and acts that Jesus performed that were meant to lead people, if they had eyes to see and ears to hear, that they might believe in Jesus. The very end of John. Chapter 20, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may recall, if you've ever studied the Gospel of John before, that it's sometimes called a book of signs and a book of glory. In the first half of John 1 through 11, neatly divides into these seven different signs. And then chapters 12 and following move toward the last week of Jesus' life, the so-called book of glory. And we see this transition here in chapter 12, where the focus is upon Jesus' glory, but his glory will be revealed in the most surprising way possible, namely his death and then his resurrection. So in the first half of the book, there are seven signs. Chapter 2. He turns water into wine. Chapter 4, he heals a royal official's son. Chapter 5, he heals a lame man. Chapter 6, feeds the 5,000. Later in chapter 6, walks on water. Chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. And in the seventh, the ultimate sign in chapter 11, Jason just preached on John 11 last week, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And in addition to being signs of his Miraculous power, you think you could argue that each of these signs were meant to be building one after another to show that Jesus has authority and power and lordship over every aspect of our lives. Think about it the, the turning water into wine there at the wedding. Now, first of all, it's a miracle, but it shows Jesus has lordship over all of life's problems. Hassles, stresses with the, the pressure of a wedding, and we're running out of the wine to serve our guests. No problem, Jesus is Lord over that. The official son, Jesus is Lord over family sorrows and family worries. The man, the lame man, he's Lord over disease. Feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is Lord over the needs of life, over thirst and hunger. When he walks on water, he demonstrates he's lord over nature. With the man born blind, he shows that he is lord over severe, innate, disability, handicaps, and of course, most preeminently, our spiritual blindness. And then ultimately, with Lazarus, he shows that that last enemy, the worst enemy, death itself, he is lord over death. After all of these signs, some of which they had seen with their own eyes, others they had heard as he traveled about, still they don't believe. Verse 37 again, though he had done so many signs. We have just seven recorded, but John chapter 20 says we couldn't even write down all the signs. He did more than these seven. These are just highlighted for us. And yet, they did not believe Sometimes, don't you think about loved ones that you know who do not believe in Jesus? Or perhaps you're here this morning, somebody brought you here, or you just wandered in, and if you're honest with yourself, you aren't sure you really believe in Jesus. And sometimes, you may convince yourself, or be convinced that if only my friend, if only my kids, if they could, if, if they could just see a miracle, they'd believe. If only... Jesus could stand before them and they could really, they could literally wrap their arms around them. Only if Jesus would answer this prayer and in this moment heal, surely they would believe. Oh, how much we would believe if only we could see, taste, touch right there in front of us. But let's not kid ourselves. We're the same human beings born with the same sinful nature, and many of us, just like many of them, could see with our own two eyes, have Jesus near enough to touch him, to hear him with our own ears, and still, we would not believe. Don't you find this sometimes, perhaps, loved ones in your life? You, you think, I have reasoned flawlessly. I have given uh, reasons to believe and more reasons to believe and more than a carpenter and much, much, much more than a carpenter. And I've given them Vantillian arguments and I've given them R.C. Sproul arguments, given them Tim Keller arguments. I've given them books upon books, proofs of the resurrection. I've talked about manuscripts and textual criticism and things I'm not even sure I understand. They don't believe. And, and you argue with great... Passion, and you, you tell your own testimony of how your life has been changed and you get on your knees and you plead and you cry and it seems to make no difference and you hear a sermon and you, you pass it along and you think surely this one, this one will make a difference. You buy the best book that you can think of and you give it to them. Point to changes and you point to miraculous interventions and yet there is unbelief how do we understand the persistence in their day and in our day of unbelief in the face of so much evidence how do we explain unbelief i want us to see from this passage four reasons and yes i understand that all of that counted against my time allotment as part of the introduction four reasons I want you to understand unbelief and and so As a let me encourage you that so often when we're trying to understand what's happening in our world, whether it seems like what happened in our culture, it seems so hostile to Christianity and to authentic Christian beliefs, or trying to understand the events of the last couple of weeks, or just trying to understand the dynamics in your own family, Scripture knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And certainly, we're right to understand proximate, secondary causes. And yet, the Bible gives us, behind the curtain, as it were, spiritually, what is happening. And if we as Christians will not give spiritual explanations, no one else will. Everyone else can deal with all of the reasons that are on the face of it, but the Bible gives to us spiritual reasons. And so, here, four explanations for unbelief, first. First, not so much an explanation as it is an allowance. We must remember that unbelief is not unprecedented. Unbelief is not unprecedented. So the first explanation is simply to realize that when you look at unbelief, in your school in your office and your family, maybe even this morning in your heart, to realize this is not a new phenomenon. It's not as if times are worse than they've ever been, and it was easier to believe in some other age. Certainly, there are challenges that come with every age, and certain beliefs that seem more obvious and more difficult. But do you know how many dead people they had seen come back to life in the first century? A big zero. It, it was not a normal occurrence. You know how many people had died as a Messiah for the sins of their people? It hadn't happened. Unbelief is not unprecedented. Look at verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then here's a quote from Isaiah 53:1. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You may know Isaiah 53, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the song of the suffering servant, which we read so often. In Holy Week, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, this prophetic word about the crucifixion of the Son of God. But here in Isaiah, we are drawn back to this passage because in Isaiah's time, they asked the same question. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question. The answer meant to be given is, Well, a lot of people had the arm of the Lord revealed, and a lot of people did not believe. And so it happened in Jesus' day as it did in Isaiah's day. Now, of course, when we share our faith with people, we don't want to go out of our way to be obnoxious. If that comes easy to you, why don't you pray that God sends you a different personality, at least when you share people Uh, with people the gospel, let's not use as an excuse that, well, people don't listen and actually you're just being a jerk. However, let us not also think, and this is tempting, if only I were smart enough, if only I could remove enough of the obstacles, if only I could contextualize enough, if only maybe I could set aside some of these things that are really unpopular. Maybe let's not talk about sexuality. Let's not talk about hell. Let's not talk about any of these things are not popular. If we could just do it in the if we could get an ad agency behind it, if we could do it in the best way possible, surely then people would believe. And we can be tempted to think that the problem is simply that we haven't been smooth enough and we haven't been smart enough. And what we see here from Jesus And hearkening back to Isaiah's day is, no, this unbelief has always been with us. Who has believed our reports? Think about Jesus has given these seven I am statements. Some of them are yet to come. He has, in the the most obvious terms possible, given his self-identification, who he is. He has shown signs to them, and yet they do not understand. It takes a new heart. No one will understand the things of Christ unless the Spirit gives you the mind of Christ. Jesus says, John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So at the very ground level, we must realize as we think about unbelief, it is not unprecedented that people would have all the reasons in front of them. Many of you know with personal heartbreak, Ones you love, and you can think how many times—I I can't count how many times—people in this church or in Christ's covenant said, "Pastor," even shaking my hand after a service. Would you pray for my son? Would you pray for my granddaughter? They know everything. They've heard it. They went to Sunday school. They went to Christian school. Some of them went to Christian college. They have the books. they, they know it, and they just—they—they they don't believe. It's not unprecedented. Who had more access to the truth than these people who saw Jesus face to face? They did not believe. Second explanation for unbelief. And this one will be hard, but it's here in the text and we need to deal with it. Sometimes people do not believe in Jesus Christ because God has hardened their hearts. You see in verse 39, it's a hard word, therefore, they could not believe. We'd like it to say they, they just didn't. We know they didn't, but here it says something even stronger. Therefore, they could not. For again, Isaiah said, now this time it's quoting from Isaiah 6, blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Have you ever known someone like this? Perhaps with tears, you can think of someone like this. And it feels like it, it is an impenetrable wall. They do not have the heart for belief. Most famously in the Old Testament was Pharaoh. Now, there are three different ways this is described in Exodus. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes it says his heart was hardened as a kind of passive statement. And other times it says God hardened his heart. So all of those are true. When we talk about the hardening of hearts, it is God's hardening as a judicial sentence. And it is also, as it was with Pharaoh, his own self-calcification. This text from Isaiah 6... Cited in Acts 28, in Matthew 13, in Mark 4, in Luke 8. It was the exegetical answer that the early church came up with to explain why have God's own people rejected their Messiah. How do we understand that with all of the signs before them, and so many Gentiles believing that so many of God's own people, in fact the most Religious leaders among them seem to be the least likely to believe. How do we understand this? And this was their spiritual explanation. Isaiah predicted it, that their hearts would be hardened. Now, let me say something, lest you you misunderstand. This language of hardening, or as verse 38, verse 39 says, they could not believe, this does not negate human responsibility we're going to come to in a moment the human explanation for some of their hardness of heart, namely that they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. It is, after all, called unbelief. It is their act of unbelief. So this does not negate human responsibility. Also, we must realize that this hardening served God's ultimate redemptive purposes, that as the Jews were hardened... The gospel would go to the Gentiles. Also to realize this is a judicial hardening. The doctrine of predestination and double predestination, but that's not actually what this is talking about. This is not talking about the decree of God in eternity to choose some and to pass over others. No, this is a judicial hardening. It is God's judgment on a wicked people who have chosen willfully, repeatedly, with great light and no excuse to reject him. Yes, faith itself is owing to God's election, but that's not what this is talking about. This is not about the eternal decree. This is talking about God handing people over to their own unbelieving desires. So when it says they could not believe important to put that together with John chapter 6, that no one can come unless the Father draws. But Jesus also says, and whosoever comes, God will never cast out. So don't misunderstand the teaching here. When it says they could not believe, do not picture it this way. People running to Jesus, please, Jesus, can I have my sins forgiven? Jesus says, no soup for you. No, you can't. I won't let you. It's too late. That's not what it means they could not believe. This does not mean that God was unwilling to forgive a penitent sinner. He is always willing, eager to forgive penitent sinners who come in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. No, the could not means that God gave them over to their own sinful hardness of heart. Whosoever comes to Jesus will not be cast out. These are not people, men, women, children, who are desperate for forgiveness, and God says, I don't have any mercy left for you. This is not God putting up a wall so that people won't come to him. This is exercising judgment in this life on the wicked by blinding their eyes so they do not see, hardening their hearts so they don't understand. Yes, it is a frightening passage It means, I'm sure I've said this uh, for many years, even from this pulpit, that one of the most dangerous and most blessed places to be on a Sunday morning is where you are sitting. Whenever you are in a church where the Word of God is preached, the gospel is proclaimed, you of all people are most blessed that you get to hear the words of life. It is an immeasurable privilege. And, oh, it's a great danger. Puritans had that saying that the same sun that melts the butter also hardens the clay. It's the same sun. It's the same word. It's the same gospel. And yet, for some, it changes the hearts and softens and leads to faith. And for others, it petrifies, calcifies. It is a dangerous place, lest you come week after week, and you hear the word of God, and you hear the voice of Jesus, and you hear the gospel faith we proclaim, and you do nothing with it. You say, not this week, Jesus, not this week. Another time, not now, not now. And with each time, you ignore, you press away, you suppress the truth of God. You may be getting yourself closer to the moment where God, with complete vindication, says, enough and no more, and pronounces upon your heart that judicial sentence of hardening, Now we do not know it, and so pray for the ones you love. Pray that it would not be so, but also be fearful. Be fearful lest we hear the word of God and do nothing with it. Some can be hardened in their stubbornness such that verse 39 becomes true. They cannot believe. They have rejected the light. If they just, I don't want light. I don't want light. I don't want light. God, Romans 1, hands them over, says, fine, no more light. It will be darkness for you. They have rejected the light, and now they have only darkness. Brothers and sisters, pray. Friends, especially if you are not a Christian, do not persist in this unbelief. Do not think that I always have another time and you always think, well, when I'm, when I'm older, when I'm out of college, or when I'm married, when I have kids, when the kids are gone, when I'm retired, when I'm nearing death, there'll always be another time. You do not know when the word of God will come to you next. You do not know when that word will finally come breakthrough or if that word will be the means of hardening a sinner's heart against God they did not believe because they could not believe third people do not believe in Jesus Christ because they love the praise of man look at verse 42 nevertheless so there's an adversative or Changing directions, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Now, it's a kind of belief, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They did not want to be put out of the synagogue. We've seen Nicodemus, he's one of the leaders. At the end of the book, we'll see Joseph of Arimathea. He's a part of the council, and he will take Jesus' body. He will believe But even those who have believed, quote-unquote, to this point, it has not been genuine saving faith. Turn back, just hold your finger there and turn back to John chapter 2 for a moment. John chapter 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You see that word in verse 34, entrust? It's the Greek word pisteuo. It's the same word translated as believed in verse 23. You could literally translate it, they believed in Jesus and Jesus did not believe in them. So we must have a category for a kind of Belief, quote-unquote, that it's specious, is spurious, it, it's, a, it's a fandom, it's not a real disciple. It's a marveling, it's a wonder at signs, and wow, you're somebody special. I want to be on Team Jesus, but it's not saving faith. There are a lot of people still today in the United States of America, probably even in East Lansing, Michigan, they're pro-Jesus, they'll get the flag, yay, I'm team Jesus, if I, I'd rather be a pro-Jesus than anti-Jesus. There's a kind of belief, but it says here, they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. He knew what was in their heart. Yes, it's true. He gets us, as the commercials say. But well, that's good news and bad news. He does get us. He understands us. He can sympathize with us. But he also gets us. He knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus knows my heart better than I know my own heart. He gets us. He he got them in chapter 2. And he got them so well, he knew what was in their heart. And he knew that their supposed faith was not real belief. And so in chapter 12... There are some of the authorities, they have a kind of belief, they're pro-Jesus, they're fans of Jesus, but they don't want it to cost anything. Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven, but whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. In order to be saved, you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess, Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Why is confession so important? Because confession is the means by which we make public our allegiance to Christ. Your faith in Jesus cannot be a private faith in Jesus if it is real faith. These these authorities here, happy to have a private faith in Jesus. They maybe would come up to him after a teaching, after a miracle. Jesus, come here just want you to know, I really appreciate what you're doing. Easy, and the privacy and confidentiality, like Nicodemus came at night, say, Jesus, I kind of like you. I'm kind of into this. Confession means we're willing to express our love and commitment to Jesus And we treasure it more and treasure him more than our physical comfort or our social status. You see the damning report of these men in verse 43. What what worse epitaph could you have written over your tombstone? Here lies one who loved the glory of man more than the glory of God that comes from God. What does it mean, glory? Because this sermon is supposed to be soli deo gloria, that we live all of our life for the glory of God. Now, this is a strange passage. It talks about the glory that comes from God. How does What does it mean that, that God in some way glorifies us? Well, one explanation is in John chapter 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. When you love Jesus, you confess Jesus, you obey Jesus, the Father loves you and manifests. He reveals, he shares his identity, his glory. The other explanation, if you look in chapter 12, it's right there in the context Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant, my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him, honor him. You ever notice that promise? That God, the creator of the universe, our heavenly father would honor You, when you confess Jesus and it costs you something, God the Father says, well done. We understand the pressure not to say anything at a department meeting, not to speak up at school, or we've learned how to speak of our faith in vague terms. I'm a spiritual person. My faith is very important to me. Church means a lot to me. We hesitate from saying, I love Jesus, Christ is Lord, He is my Savior, He is my all in all. John Calvin said, can anything be more foolish, or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applauses of men to the judgment of God? When we look at it, it it, it is folly. They loved the praise of men. They love the glory that came from man. Some of you, maybe particularly young people, and by young I always mean anybody younger than me, so the young are getting older all the time. You will make a decision to please strangers on the internet to give you a, a thumbs up, a heart. Or you fear the approval or the disapproval of your so-called friends. And what friends are they? They disown you for failing to like or to fly the right flag. And you love their praise. Want their glory. You want them to rise up. Clap. Clap. More than the glory that comes from God. Calvin says it's beastly. It's choosing your pets over your spouse. Now for some reason, since we moved away, we have two cats now. Uh, And I'm allergic to cats and uh, other kids are allergic to cats. And when you get cats and they're supposed to be outdoor cats and cats have a different mind about what they're supposed to do. And they become indoor cats, and you know what cats are like. And they, What's that old uh, saying about cats and dogs? You know, the a dog looks at the, the master, and this, this person feeds me and plays with me and takes care of me. Wow, oh, this person must be a god. The cat looks and says, this person feeds me, strokes me, takes care of me. I must be a god. So that's, that's the, the different cat-dog mentality And so when they're supposed to be in the garage, and the two cats—one we bought, one is a stray—sleeping on the couch, if I were to say, Patricia, I would prefer, prefer to make sure that the cats think well of me. Need to spend a little more time with the cats. They come first thing in the morning, and, and they're all, you know, purring along my leg because I'm the first one up, and I gotta give them their food. They always, uh, my kids say, Did you feed the cats, Dad? I fed the cats hard food, soft food, gave them a back rub, took care of all the things with the cats. The cats love me. We would all recognize it's a folly to think, Live your life so the cats like you. Who cares about the spouse? Say, That's a foolish exchange, and we do an even worse exchange all the time when we say, I must have these people down here, I must have strangers on the internet. I must have friends who know nothing more than I do about life to say they like me. I don't need the glory that comes from God. We're willing to stand for Christ as long as it's a stand that doesn't cost us anything. People ask me all the time. I'm sure you're asking these questions and you have good pastors to give you good answers. Ask me all the time. Questions about how to navigate weddings or rainbows or pronouns. And they're good questions. They're hard questions. I do fear sometimes the unspoken assumption behind the question is, Pastor, help me know what to do in this difficult situation, assuming assuming that the answer, obviously, is that I wouldn't do anything that would cost me my job, my status, my friends, my family. As long as I can still have some of the glory That comes from man. But you see Jesus' logic. The Father honors the Son. And then those who serve the Son, the Father will also honor. Which leads to our final point. In connecting the dots back to glory. People do not believe in Jesus Christ. Because they do not see what Isaiah saw. Pastor Kevin preached on this a few weeks ago from Isaiah 6, and it's referenced there in verse 40, and then in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Isn't that striking? His, somehow in that vision, whether it was a vision of a pre-incarnate Christ as he understood it, or Just a vision of Yahweh, who is now Christ come in the flesh. But he understands, John interprets, when Isaiah saw that vision, high and lifted up, the glory of the robe filling the temple, the seraph, the the angelic explosion of praise. When he saw all that, he saw Jesus. He saw his glory. Throne befitting a king seraphs with six wings two to fly two to cover their feet in the presence of majesty two to cover their eyes because they cannot look upon god in the fullness of glory and they cry out holy 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 and john tells us isaiah saw jesus there isaiah saw jesus glory and he spoke of him isaiah spoke of one who would be born of a virgin A prince of peace from the stump of Jesse. The Lord come to comfort his people. The suffering servant. The one proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The one who has heaven for his throne. And the earth for his footstool. He saw his glory and spoke of him. We all believe in that which we consider most glorious. Verse 43 assumes that every one of you... Love, glory. You love glory. So I titled this, The Inescapable Love of Glory. We are wired to want, to need, to love glory. The question then is not whether you are living your life for glory. You are, every one of you. You're living your life for for some glory. That's not an issue. The question is, whose glory You've heard it said, perhaps, we become what we behold. That is, what we look at, we become. But it's also true, we believe in what we behold as most glorious. Whatever you look upon, whatever person, thing, school, sport, institution that you find most glory, most most weighty, most precious, most exhilarating, that will grab your heart and your faith. We believe in what we behold as most glorious. And so the question is whether you have seen what Isaiah saw. You see in verse 27, earlier in the chapter, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify me. Your name then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. And later, in verse 35, Jesus said, "The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe, in the light, you may become sons. Light. Have you seen? Have you believed? Every one of you has faith. You're putting faith in something. There's someone, there's someone, something whose who's opinion of you, whose praise of you, should it be removed, would absolutely crush you. A friend, it's an internet algorithm. It's your parents, it's your boyfriend, girlfriend. Sometimes it's your own children. You cannot live without their Glory. God knows that. God knows you better than you know yourself. That's how you're wired. God doesn't say, oh, well, shame on you. You shouldn't care about glory. What, what the Bible tells us is, live for the one who is truly glorious, whose light is all glory and purity and beauty and truth. Have you seen the light? And so I leave you with this. You say, well, what do we do, Pastor? What should our response be for us, for the ones we love, to connect this glory and this delight? It's very simple. There in verse 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Make it your prayer if, if you're hearing this and you know at some point in this message, it wasn't just a pastor, it was the voice of God Himself speaking to you, and you know that you have not seen this and put your faith as Jesus describes it, would you pray, I want to see Jesus. If you have loved ones in your life, this is a simple prayer day by day. Oh God, would you help them to see Jesus? Jesus, as He really is. For all of you, beloved ones, walking with Him, pray day by day, more and more. Sir, we wish to see this Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks. We pray this simple, life-altering prayer. We wish to see Jesus, not as the world would understand Him, but as He really is. In all of His tenderness, all of His lowliness, all of His exaltation, all of His humiliation, all of His light and glory, let us have eyes to see and believe. Jesus, we pray. Amen.